Hey, welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast, everything center fire and rim fire. How are y'all doing out there? I hope you're doing good. We're doing really good. We have just completed day one of the the brawl here at Rifles Only. Uh, everything's going good. Good weather. Not like two years ago when we froze. I uh, wanted to give out a shout out to all of our sponsors that are here on the brawl this time. Uh, DST Precision, Bartland Barrel, Spartan Precision Rifles, Neeson Outdoors, Leopold, Hornady, Manners Composite Stocks, QL Clothing, GA Precision, Thunder Peast Arms, Mile High, XLR Industries, Armageddon Gear, Magpul, Primary Arms, Proof Research, Roberts Precision Rifles, Fix-It Sticks, Hoppies, Champion, JC Steel, Foundation Stocks, Wilder Tactical, Two Vets Tripods, Vortex Optics, Sig Sour, Target Hanging Solutions, Tactical Works, Geo Ballistics, Defiance Machine, WeBad, Short Action Precision, B&T Industries, Redbeard Gunworks, Kestrel Ballistics, Magneto Speed, AccuTac, Vectronics, Huber Concept, KMW, True North Raven, and MDT. If you can't find anything that you need to shoot on that list of sponsors, then you can't find them. So anyway, real quick, we have a guest that is a returning guest here two years ago at the Brawl. Uh, we had a chance to to uh, visit with him about optics, and we really, really appreciated him taking the time to do it with us. So I want to welcome Michael Bachelieri. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Man, thanks for being here. Yeah, there was. Uh, it's been it's been two years since I've seen you. Been a couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was going over. So you know, yours was. You know, we since you were here last time, we have a a uh, email that's dedicated to this podcast that people can you know put in questions and things like that. We didn't have it at that time, and so I know that a lot of people will go back and they'll listen to that. I think we're uh, season one on that one, uh, but I know that at the time we talked about parallax, and that was a jaw dropper. You know, for everyone in the room as well as the people that were listening to it. Uh, you know, weight. You know, weight of scopes, the mass that has to be carried around. We talked talked about the recoil pulse, you know, what that does to optics, you know, as well as how Leupold tests and stuff like that. But I, at the time I wanted to get you back and now I got you back and I know that you have to leave. And so I, <laughs> I, I started, I, I pulled a, a pistol on you and I said, Hey, get in there. We're going to do a podcast real quick. So I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. All right. Well, um, what have you been doing since then? How you like the match? The mat, it's, well, I'm shooting better, so it's way better this year. <laughs> good. Yeah. It's, uh, I've had a, a couple of really good stages and then, you know, bullet a couple like normal. Yeah. So, um, what are you shooting? I'm shooting a six arc. Yeah. I'm shooting a, yep. I'm shooting a defiance ruckus, uh, action with a proof. Uh, this one, I got two barrels for it. This one's a 24 inch stainless, mm -hmm. uh, six arc barrel. And, um, it's, it's pretty accurate. I mean, by the time I got here, I only had about 40 or 50 rounds through it. Yeah. So for six mil, it's going to take it a minute to calm down. But yeah. it has been, I'm happy with it. It's sitting in an ATX chassis. And uh, yeah, I've got a Mark V on it. And it's, it's doing that. That's a Leupold, right? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a Leupold. That's, yeah. that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I figured, <laughs> yeah. figured you might get a Leupold. Yeah. Well, well, cool, well I, I know that, again, we are, your time is limited because you're you're not going to be able to be here tomorrow and you have some running around to do. So I just want to get right into it and dig some crap out of your brain. The first yeah. thing I want to talk about is reticle collimation. Reticle collimation is, um, it's an interesting concept because it's, it, initially it's counterintuitive to what we've been taught a lot and what we've been taught is a mill is a mill is a mill or a minute's a minute's a minute it doesn't matter especially in regards to a first focal plane scope or a second focal plane scope that's on max magnification regardless a mill is a mill is a mill and that is true 
in regards to that being an isolated statement in regards to a mill being a mill as it is referred to as an uh, as a simple angular unit of measure Roger. but in regards to our scopes that mm-hmm. is incorrect okay and what i mean by that is that uh reticles have to be collimated to be accurate at a certain distance so okay. your reticle realistically is only accurate at a specific distance, even on a first focal plane scope. Okay. And so we have to set those up, any optics company does, has to set those up at the factory to be accurate at a very, very specific distance. And if done correctly, when you're on the 100 yard line doing a reticle collimation test or a reticle accuracy test to see if a mill actually equals a mill, it should be inaccurate. Okay. And, um, we need to take these scopes and collimate them at a distance called optical infinity. And optical infinity is going to be different from scope to scope. So the Mark V line, optical infinity is right around 600 yards. I'd imagine on its equivalent in the industry for a well-made scope, it's going to be probably roughly about the same length. I don't, I don't know other manufacturers. But if you were to get, say, like an old Variax 2, three to nine, mm-hmm. it's going to be closer to 350 yards mm-hmm. because the optical system, the optical system, excuse me, is designed differently. And what optical infinity realistically is, is it's the distance that the optical system draws in light and color where they are no longer entering the optical system at an angle. All coming so straight. what's that? All coming straight. They're all coming in straight, perfectly in line, linear with the optical system. And the closer you get from optical infinity, they enter the optical system from an angle. That angle causes a distorted relationship between your image and your reticle. Okay. So uh, basically, when we collimated them at optical infinity, everything at optical infinity and beyond is dead on. Okay. A mill is- Let me back you up. Yep. What does collimate actually mean? Collimation is a, is a, a technical word that basically just means focusing, okay. right? That's all it is. Is it, It's kind of like instead of scope shadow, the word is technically vignetting, right? It's right. one of those deals. But when I say scope shadow, you know what I mean. So right. we focus the reticle to be accurate based on the effective focal length, right, mm-hmm. of where that reticle lands inside of the system. That has to be physically placed in a location so that it is accurate so that a mill from the dead center of one mill line to the dead center of the next mill line is one mill Mm -hmm. right a true mill and we do that at optical infinity as you get closer than optical infinity all the lights and colors are now coming in at an angle so the closer you get the worse disparity you're going to have so on average, you're going to see a scope with anywhere from 2 to 4% disparity at 100 yards, meaning if you set that test up and you have a like a tall target reticle, like a, a gridded target that's mm-hmm. in 10th mil subtensions, and it's been designed to be set at 100 yards or 100 meters, that matters, mm-hmm. 100 yards. So you set it out at 100 yards because that, that you printed it out on a plotter, you got a four by eight sheet, mm-hmm. right? You set it out at 100 yards. If you were to take, say, a Mark V, and you put that and bag that bag that optic up and you have it dead on where the reticle is located in the scope to right at where it, at 100 yards and it's like 300 feet down to the quarter inch mm-hmm. and everything's set up properly and you look at that reticle and you set it up so that that mill line is dead on with the mill line on the on the grid mm-hmm. the next mill line will not be on the grid line it will not equal a mill because what ends up happening is because you've set it up at optical infinity, the closer you get, 
the more deviation you're going to have between the actual reticle subtended lines mm-hmm. and what that actual distance is, separation distance is, left to right lateral distance okay. at whatever given target. So the worst we've seen at testing a lot of these scopes is up to 4%. Okay. So what that means is 4% would be 4% of a mil. So basically four tenths of a tenth mil. So less than half of a tenth, less than half of a tenth. Okay. Well, a tenth mil is 0.36 inches and a hundred yards. Right. So half that is going to be 0.18. I'm doing my math wrong here. 0. 0.18, 0. 0.180. Something. Right. <laughs> and then what is three sixteenths of an inch is 0.1875. If I'm doing my math right in my mm-hmm. head, thinking about a tape measure. Mm-hmm. So three sixteenths of an inch. So we, we're talking about a deviation between mill to mill, line to line, is at 100 yards, less than three-sixteenths of an inch off. And that's worst-case scenario. Okay, that's, right? that's as bad as it goes. That's as bad as it could go. So we don't really call wind at 100 yards. No. Right? We just no. don't. Okay, so then once we bump out to 200, since it's been collimated for optical infinity, which if we're specifically talking about the Mark V, it's going to be right around 600. By the time we get to 200, now you're like less than an eighth inch. And then by the time you get to 300, you're at 330 seconds. And then on down we go. By the time you get 600, and we're talking not angular unit of measure at this point, we're talking linear unit of measure, three sixteenths off. So if I'm at, you know, 300 yards and I'm an eighth inch off, I guess it'd be 330 seconds or whatever it'd be with the the example we just gave. If I'm, if I'm holding wind, right. And I'm holding, you know, 0.6 mils, which Mm -hmm. would be massive wind at 300 yards. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm holding like 0.6, the most I could possibly be off in addition to that based on my reticle collimation would be 330 seconds left or right, which means we're still on the, the eye pupil of a human eye. You're not missing anything. Right. And then by the time you get to 400, it's even less. By the time you get to 500, it's even less. By the time you hit 600, it your reticle exist. is now dead nuts on, mill mm-hmm. to mill, and to infinity and beyond. It'll right? stay that way. It'll stay that way. Now, the problem is, is and this is why I wanted to, to go into this a little bit, is that why do we test everything at 100 yards? Why do we shoot? Why do we zero? Why do we test our, our load data? Why do we do everything at 100 yards? Well, typically, 100 yards is far enough out for us to identify any any deficiency in the system. Ammo, rifle, us, the monkey behind the gun, all this stuff. But it's close enough in to where no atmospherics take effect on the round yet. Right. Um, Also, we tested 100 yards because when we get beyond 100 yards, then things like mirage, wind, start playing with it. And the atmospherics, like we were talking about, Mm -hmm. and you can't accurately test things, right? Right. You get get a whole bunch of dudes on a firing line and you're doing a range estimation exercise and they're trying to range E out at, I don't know, 550 yards on a high mirage day. Mm -hmm. I mean, the lines are, everything's wavy on them. It's challenging. So we test everything at 100. Well, if you're a scope company and you want this stuff to end up on YouTube, I mean, there's a billion people out there that are like, hey, guys, welcome back to the channel. Please remember to like and subscribe. We're going to talk about today is the new scope that I got, right, or whatever. And 99% of the time when they do a tall target test or a reticle collimation test, they're getting that distance with a rangefinder. Right. Well, even if you pull out a Vector 21, it's only good down to a meter. Right. And this test has to be set up to where you're like down a quarter or within a half inch quarter, and then yeah up to 300 feet yeah 300 feet like on the money right and 
you're not measuring from the muzzle. Mm -hmm. You have to know what the inner workings of that scope looks like because you're measuring from the front of the erector assembly inside of that scope. Or if it's a second focal, you're measuring from the back of the erector assembly where that reticle is. Right. So if it's a tall target test, front of the erector, if it's a reticle collimation test, either front or back based on whether it's a first or second focal plane. So you actually have to know what the inside of the scope looks like and where to measure from. Okay. So you measure from that point, get it out to 300 feet exactly, or 100 meters, whatever the foot variant of that is, right? Right. And you have to make sure at that point that your target at that distance is perfectly level, both forward and backward, mm-hmm. or left and right. Because if not, it's going to look like the optic is tracking, tracking left or right when the target actually could be canted. Mm-hmm. Or you're tracking up and down, or your, your reticle will look off because if the target is faded away from you or mm-hmm. leaning towards you, now you've got a point on that target that's closer or farther, right. and it won't work for your measurements. Right. So setting up this test is a, is a two-hour fiasco in and of itself, and, and you need to find the right terrain to do it. It's, right. it's a total pain in the neck. But Let me it, ask you this. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of things that you said in there on the, on the deal. And so I always like, we're ranging. If we're ranging something, I always said that this is where the rifle gods give you the finger. Because if you're ranging something with the mill relation formula, it's pretty, you can get pretty good at it to 500 yards. But then beyond that, because of the, the atmospherics, like you're saying, you just can't see the edge of the target clearly enough to get an accurate measurement. It gets super challenging. Yeah. And then the thing about it is, is you don't really need to be that accurate inside 500 yards where, right. you know, you can be. And then after that, it doesn't. But my biggest thing on, the, on this collimation to where we're off on such a very small degree, me as an end user, and I have a student that comes up. And so we're, we're doing a zeroing exercise mm-hmm. just so that we can go out because everything's based off 100 yards, zero, 100 meters, zero. Yeah. So we're doing a zeroing exercise. And I go and I look at that and I say, okay, from the center of your group, you need to come up, you know, we just put a scope on. You need to come up 1.5 mils. Yeah. And you need to come to the left 0.7 mils. Sure. Because that's what I'm seeing. Yeah. All right. So we make that adjustment on the scope. And buck it's zeros yeah no no that's that's correct yeah so when you so think I, about think, my question is yeah this small variation that we're seeing is very technical it doesn't really matter it the, does depending on how the manufacturers set it up and that's what i was going to get into okay, next right, so that's right. kind of the second half of the okay. talking about reticle collimation okay so if it's been set up properly mm-hmm and it has been collimated for optical infinity, you have a very slight deviation at 100 yards or 100 meters, whatever. And then that deviation shrinks even more and more. You get out to optical infinity and then everything matches perfectly and you're good to go. Right. Right. What I was referring to in regards to the guys on YouTube, people doing these tall target tests, they're like, oh, this scope didn't do so hot. Well, did you actually take the time to set up the test properly? Mm -hmm. Right. So to set that test up is very time intensive. And then if you have, going back to that 100 yard, why do we do everything at 100 yards? If you have a scope company that you want to shine, Mm -hmm. right, you would collimate that to 100 yards. Mm -hmm. And once you collimate it to 100 yards and you come back to my YouTube channel and I'm like, dude, this thing is dead on. It tracks perfectly. Everything's dead nuts. Well, then what happens is that cone of deviation starts with zero deviation at 100 and then starts working its way out and the disparity right starts heading away from you okay so what happens is if i have a scope set up and i've collimated that reticle for 100 yards when i get on the 100 yard line everything is going to feel perfect it's Mm -hmm. going to feel give me that really good warm and fuzzy and then as i start working out well where does wind 
take the effect the most, mm-hmm. the further away from you, right? Cause it's just got more time to work on your bullet. You know what I mean? And so not talking about vertical deviations and getting all crazy technical, but a five mile an hour wind at 300 yards is going to be what it is. But you take a five mile an hour wind and you put it at 1200 yards mm-hmm. and you're going to see a lot more movement in your bullet. Right? So what ends up happening is if you and I are shooting at say 1200 yards and I'm like, Hey, we got a pretty gnarly wind out there. I need you to hold 1.2 left. Okay. And you hold 1.2 left and you break that shot and you miss left or right, you and I are automatically going to think I made a bad wind call. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're like, dude, that was 1.2, Sarge, on the money. Yeah. Right? And you held well. My fundamentals were solid. You and I both automatically think I made a bad wind call. But if we're shooting a scope that has been had the reticle collimated at 100 yards, mm-hmm. right, so that we could get that warm and fuzzy, well, now when you held 1.2, you weren't holding 1.2. Mm-hmm. Because once that that deviation hits optical infinity, it doesn't write itself right. and it's good it forever. Gets now. It worse. gets worse and worse and worse forever. Right. So when I tell you, Hey, Jacob, this wind's nasty. Give me 1.2 left. You hold 1.2 left and break and you miss two tenths left or, or the other direction. You're like, dude, what, what happened? Well, I made a bad wind call, right? No. Now 1.2 doesn't mean 1.2 on that scope anymore. And you might've been holding 1.4, mm-hmm. but on your scope, it was 1.2. Yeah. So it's really important that if you guys are out there doing this test yourself and you actually set the test up properly, you go out with an open reeled carpenter's tape measure or an ag GPS or whatever it is, and you get it like dead nuts on and you do this test and you set your reticle up at a hundred yards and you bag everything up. If it matches dead on, with a plotted grid, that should be the opposite of a warm and fuzzy. Yeah. It should be incorrect at 100 mm-hmm. because it will write itself based on optical design moving further out. But that still doesn't matter with the number that I look at it at 100. To not at 100. Gun. No, not at 100. And, it, and it's never going to matter and you're never going to notice it if the scope has been collimated for optical infinity. Right. Because the reality is, is that we're talking about the worst we've seen it is less than a half of a tenth mil. Mm-hmm. So when you read that in your, what I call your angular unit of measure tape measure inside of your scope, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like you get away from the 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 redneck spotting, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey man, y'all are like, like a target and a half to the right. Like, yeah. well, my scope doesn't adjust in target widths, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So you use that tape measure inside your scope and you say, hey dude, you need to come 1.2 left. You need to come up 0.3 and you'll be on target. Well, because it's such a small disparity at 100, mm-hmm. it's super irrelevant. Right. Where it matters is if the call, if the scope has been collimated at 100, right. now you're going to see it at distance and you're going to be all over the place and get right. extremely frustrated. And it's kind of interesting because of our last discussion on parallax, you yep. know, and it was like, the closer you are, the more it matters. Yep. The further you are, the less it matters. Yeah. So I, I think that's interesting. That's yep. interesting, man. Well, like I say, we, we always say that our, we tell our students that whenever they see a target initially, I mean, here at the competition or anything else, whenever you see that target initially, the first thing you do is mill it, yep. mill it side to side, because you're probably going to be okay on your elevation, but wind is always going to be that factor. Yeah. And so if you go and you hit, you know, you skin it right at three o'clock, you need to make a correction at least at least minimum half the half width, the target with half the right? target with exactly. Yeah. And so if you have a scope that's that's out there and do it, I guess it could also come a problem if you're shooting with someone and they're shooting a scope that is perfect at a hundred, and the other person is shooting one that has done at optical infinity. You know, you're seeing two different things downrange. Yeah, you will downrange yeah. and. The interesting thing is, like, I was over uh, training a uh, an instructor group from a military group. This was in uh, 2019, and um, 
And I was like, hey, I mean, who's calling win at 100 meters? This doesn't really matter because who's calling win at 100 meters? And they all raise their hand. Yeah. I'm like, what, why would you call win at 100 meters? And one of the students was like, well, the wind will move the bullet. I'm like, I know why you make a wind call, right? Like, I get that. But like, yeah. why? I go, what are you shooting, 22s? And they're like, yeah, it's our primary use weapon. I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, we need to know that yeah. <laughs> so that when you order scopes, those scopes are actually collimated at 100, not optical infinity. Right. Because if you're shooting a 22 in the wind that you guys are dealing with, then you absolutely need to have that scope collimated to yeah. where you can hold off at a hundred and your reticle is dead on accurate. Yeah. That makes, you know, right. And so that's, that's where it can definitely come into play oh, yeah, is based sure. on application like that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, you done with that one? Cause I want to yeah. move on. We can go down as far down the rabbit hole as you want to go. We'll be here all night yeah. though. All right, man. Tell me about the optical triangle. So the optical triangle is something that applies to, Pretty much every scope out there. This isn't like a loophole thing or, or any branded thing. This is specific to scopes, inline scopes, and um, it it applies to prism scopes as well. When I mean inline, I mean like a a regular scope that we utilize that we're all used to. the The lights and colors enter the optical bundle or the light bundle enters the optical system in line with the scope and it stays in the same direction all the way through the scope. When I say inline scope, what I'm not referring to is an ACOG that's a prism mm -hmm. and the scope goes in there and does a couple rope it opens and then out yeah, the back, right? Out an image. It still applies to that. So, uh, so it'll apply to inline as well as prism scopes, but the optical triangle is comprised of three components and that's magnification, eye relief, and field of view. And why those three components are so critical is they're 100% codependent on each other. Mm -hmm. So if you could imagine an equilateral triangle, so all three legs of the triangle are the exact same length, then you draw a perfect circle around them and it touches all three corners of the triangle. Imagine that that circle has to stay the exact same size. It cannot change sizes. So that means that if I want to increase magnification, i.e., lengthen the leg that the magnification is on in the triangle, I have to give up ground on the other two legs. Okay. Right? So you've got uh, magnification, eye relief, and field of view. If I want more magnification, I'm giving up eye relief, and I'm giving up field of view. If I want more field of view, I have to give up eye relief and give up magnification, and all the way around we go. If you want more of one, the other two have to give ground. They got to suffer. They have to suffer. And why this is really important and I want to touch a little bit more on field of view here in a minute. Mm -hmm. But why this is really important is because you have these three aspects of a scope that are all three of those are very critical uh, characteristics of a scope that we are searching for, right? Mm -hmm. We want a certain magnification window. Like on the Mark V, you've got the, the 2 to 10, the 3.6 to 18, 5 to 25, 7 to 35. Well, if I want the 5 to 25 and I can go all the way up to 25 power, I'm not going to have the same field of view on 25 that I, I'm going to have on 18 when I grab the 3.6 to 18. And, um, and then you're looking at eye relief. Eye relief is a huge, huge aspect for all of us that are what I would refer to as a field shooter. Mm -hmm. Bench rest is a different ball game, mm -hmm. right? Because why bench rest is such a different ball game is you are literally in the same body position every time you shoot. Mm -hmm. Whether I'm on your range or I'm on someone else's range, I'm in the north, I'm in the east, the south, the west, doesn't matter. If I go to a bench rest competition, I'm going to be in the same body it's position. Standardized. It's all standardized. And so... The thing about that is that when I'm in the field, I have no idea what body position I'm going to be in. Mm -hmm. I was in 30 of them today, and we only ran 10 stages. But mm -hmm. several of those stages, you got to go to three different walls or three different areas or whatever, mm -hmm. and you're getting your body in different positions. And so looking at that eye relief, it's very, very important to understand how that needs to work with you as opposed to against you. Mm -hmm. 
What I mean by that is we know that as we change our magnification, our eye box, which our eye relief is dead center of, right, optimized, if you will, our eye box on low power shifts further away from the scope back mm-hmm. towards the buttstock. As we dial up, it shifts forward. Mm-hmm. Well, as a generalized statement, and I know that there's fringe reasons that we all might look at, what dictates the magnification that we put that scope on when we take a shot? Some people would say distance. Some people would say movers. Some people would say mirage. All these things, they're all true. They're all, they all can play a part, mm-hmm. but I would say they're all fringe uh, reasons for that. As a blanket statement, generalized, for the most part, what dictates our magnification is how well we've stabilized the rifle, what mm-hmm. body position we can be in, right? So if you have a standing offhand shot that's 120 yards out, but you don't have any support, you're probably going to be on very low magnification. And then you grab a law enforcement officer that's at 48 yards and he's across the street, but he's got his bipods on somebody's kitchen counter and he's got a tripod behind him for a rear support. Mm-hmm. And he's taking a 42 yard shot or whatever I said, but there's only a half of a face showing because he's got a hostage scenario. Mm-hmm. He's probably going to dial up his magnification because it's a lot more stable. Mm-hmm. Well, how stable I am is going to dictate two things. One, the magnification that I put the gun on. And two, it'll also dictate where my cheek lands on the stock, right? And then where my magnification lands based on what I need it to be, that's going to dictate where my eye relief lands. Okay. And so where my cheek landed is also dictated by where my eye relief lands. All those need to work together, right? Mm-hmm. My body structure, my magnification that I desire or need in that moment, plus where my eye relief lands. And all those have to work together and sync. Mm-hmm. Well, when we take a scope in, or when we go into a store and we start to look at scopes, right? And we're in a big box store or a mom and pop store, it doesn't matter. We're looking, we're comparing scopes because we're about to drop anywhere from two to three grand on an optical system. Mm-hmm. And like that, you know, the old timers would say, you know, when you adjust a scope, you got to smack the objective bell, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. Like you, people still think, oh, the scope should be equal or more expensive than the gun, mm-hmm. right? Well, they've never bought a brand new AX before because <laughs> you're not going to find a $7,000 scope for your freaking gun. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Um, so uh, anyway, going in there and comparing those, we start to look at the characteristics of the scopes. We start to look at field of view. We start to look at eye relief. We start to look at eye box. Well, I'm going to take a side note here uh, because I spent a long time as a diesel mechanic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I lived, I paid my mortgage with a torque wrench. That's what I yep. did when I was building engines. And torque is very, very important. Uh, and we can go into a freaking torque class and elasticity windows at, at a later time. But the reality is, is if you are putting on, say, an oil cooler on a big old diesel engine and you're like, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't know where the OEM service manual is. I need the torque spec for this. I can get on the Google machine and type in grade five bolt torque spec and it'll bring up grade five bolts and you go down and go, okay, I got a three eighths bolt with 16 threads per inch. And you look over and you're like, all right, grade five, three, eight, 16 is 34 foot pounds. Mm-hmm. For anybody listening, if you've got a three, eight, 16 grade five bolt, I have no idea if that's the actual torque, <laughs> but like you, you can get that standard and any grade five bolt out there that is three eighths of an inch diameter, 16 threads per inch is going to have a standard torque spec because that's going to drop it inside of its elasticity window Mm -hmm. when you bring up to its torque yield you can literally have the exact same thing for an eye relief and field of view standards chart Mm -hmm. so what i mean is if you took say the mark 5 5 to 25 and you put that on a bench next to uh, a night force ATAC R five to 25 or a call 525 I or a Schmidt PM two five to 25. Those mm-hmm. are all, those are all well-built scopes, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I, I notice I haven't mentioned like garbage. I've mentioned good, yeah, good expensive scopes, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you take all of those and say we get them all the 25 power, exactly on 25 power. If they all have an identical field of view, conversely, they will all have the exact same eye relief. Okay. Right? And that's, that's important to understand because you can build a standards chart that says, if on 25 power, my optical system, if on 25 power, my field of view is 14.7 yards and 100 yards or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you can do that across the board, conversely, they will all have the exact same eye relief. Now, when building those scopes, if you set all of those up, so on a certain magnification like 25 power, they all have a 2.4 inch eye relief and they all have that, conversely, they will all have the exact same field of view. Mm-hmm. This is a decision for, a, for an optics company. Mm-hmm. Where do we prioritize, right? So if you look at um, the Loophole Mark V versus a Night Force ATAC R, for instance, mm-hmm. we have a much better eye relief. They have a better field of view because mm-hmm. they've given up eye relief. Back to the optical triangle. When you want to gain ground on one of those legs and extend one of those legs, you're having to give up on the other ones. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent, right. but what I am saying is that when you look at two scopes side by side and you have them both on 20 power or 25 power, whatever it is, and you say, well, this one has a way better field of view, know that that one will have a far worse eye relief. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to understand. So going back to the bench rest conversation, if you have a bench rest rifle that you've built only to shoot bench rest, who cares about your eye relief? If it's off, unbolt the scope, move it closer or further from you, and you're fine because you are going to be in the exact same body position every single time you shoot that gun. Right. So it doesn't matter, right? But if you get out to a hunting scenario, a long-range competition scenario, a sniper scenario, you have no clue. I always say you got to dance with the girl you brought or the mm-hmm. partner you brought because now there's a lot of female <laughs> shooters here, male shooters, whatever. You've got to dance with a partner you brought to the dance. I'm from Portland. We don't judge, right? <laughs> yeah, y'all don't judge. Yeah. So anyway, you got to dance with a dance partner you brought no matter how ugly they are. And what I mean by that is you might get into a situation or a shooting position, and we've all been there where you're like, dude, this is so uncomfortable, and this is absolutely not my ideal, but this is what I have right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we've all had those moments where you're like, oh, gosh, I was going to save weight and didn't bring the tripod. And you're like, now I need three of them in this precision. You know what I mean? Right. So when you get into those weird, awkward shooting situations in the field and that huge and incredibly forgiving eye relief becomes really, really, really important. That's mm-hmm. that's probably one of the reasons why eye relief and an elongated eye relief is probably one of Leupold's most sacred cows when developing a scope. It's probably one of our biggest focus points mm-hmm. is the largest and most variable eye relief due to the fact that regardless of what field position I'm in, I can get behind that scope and get inside of a full scope mm-hmm. of light instead of fighting it. Yeah. All right. So understand that when you go into a store and you're like, well, this one's got a really big field of view. Well, you've given up eye relief to get it. And mm-hmm. if this one's like, oh, this one has a massive eye relief. Well, you've given up field of view to get mm-hmm. it. So depending on what your needs are in your application as a, as a guy who's a former military guy, and I don't compete that much, I get to your match and a couple others throughout the year, maybe, but as a, uh, an avid hunter mm-hmm. and as a former military guy, eye relief is king for me because mm-hmm. I have no clue what body position. I might be over a rock, a log, you know, downhill, sideways prone. I have mm-hmm. no idea. Mm-hmm. But that eye relief is a massive part of scope selection for me because I have no clue where I'm going to land behind that rifle. Yeah. Another thing about that is having a, a real forgiving eye relief. I seem to not get as tired. Yeah, you get like scope, I would call it scope claustrophobia. Yeah. Because you feel like you're fighting your system. Yeah. 
right? And understanding that eye relief and what's called your exit pupil mm -hmm. and understanding the eye box measurement and how that works behind the rifle becomes really critical for optics setup. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole other class that we actually do. We'll tack it on to like one of our optic seminars is basically how to mount our scope because the reality is a lot of people say, I need to mount my scope. And they're talking about taking their scope and bolting it to a rifle. Mm -hmm. You don't mount a scope to a rifle. You attach it to the gun, but you mount it to the shooter. Mm -hmm. You always mount it to the shoulder structure of the shooter and how they address the gun. Because we all know that you can teach somebody perfect fundamentals, robotic fundamentals, but if they've got two freaking two pieces that are fused in their spine, mm -hmm. they might have to blade off the gun. Whereas mm -hmm. you and I would look at that and be like, that's not going to be the best position for recoil management. They're like, right. it's either this or I don't shoot. Right. You know what I mean? Because yeah. their body position, you know, we've all sustained injuries or have different body types or diaphragms or shoulder structure, whatever it is. Yeah. You have to actually mount the scope to the shooter, not the gun. You just attach it to the rifle and you do that properly. Obviously there's a procedure for that, but yeah. understanding when I get behind a gun, I can get with another guy who's five foot 11, which is my height. And because my shoulders are really sloped, I can roll my shoulders back, engage him with my lats, do like, you know, full Kelly stare at, you know what I mean? Like perfect body structure. As far as my posture goes, my right. shoulders are still super sloped. It's like the biggest pain in the ass when you're humping a ruck in the military is the straps just want to slide off. Mm -hmm. Then you meet another guy that's my size, roughly my size, my height, my weight, but his shoulders naturally are much more squared off. Well, he and I are going to dress that rifle differently, even yeah. though we're the same height. So we have to mount the scope to the shooter. So looking at eye relief, uh, field of view and magnification, it becomes really important. Magnification, especially when it comes to a high powered scope is what it is. But the, the thing that's really important to understand is that you remember the old Mark IV, four and a half to 14? I do. That was not a four and a half to 14. That was a 4.6 to 14.2. Mm -hmm. Why that's important is because when you go into a store and you're looking at two scopes and you spin two scopes up to say 20 power, you're like, well, this one's got a way better field of view. Well, that one actually might be on 19.8 and the other one is on 20.1. Mm -hmm. And if you were able to take I don't know what the machine costs, like half a million dollars or something to set up two optical systems and make sure that they are compared dead on together. Mm -hmm. If you were to take that machine and put them both on there and spin them to exactly 20 power, mm -hmm. well, the opposite might be true. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea of field of view, and this is something I want to dive down uh, for a quick second as well. There's several different, well, there's two types of field of views that we need to be aware of. Okay. And one is, is what's called actual field of view, and that's super irrelevant to us. Mm -hmm. The other one is called apparent field of view, and that's the only one that matters because that's what you can see. That is that's what apparent you to your eye. Right. So understanding the optical triangle, magnification, eye relief field of view, it's really important to know that when I want more of one thing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to give ground on the others. Mm -hmm. So probably the scope, there is no scope on the planet that I'm aware of that on four power, has a better field of view than an ACOG. Mm -hmm. It has the best field of view I've ever seen on a four power scope, mm -hmm. but our eye relief is non-existent, yeah. right? You have to be yeah. inside the scope to yeah. see through it almost, right? Yeah. You have a one point, I think it's on the four power, it's a 1.5 inch eye relief. Yeah. So that's why in the military for years, we've been teaching nose to charging handle because mm -hmm. it's the, well, I mean, that was part of the old service rifle mentality, mm -hmm. but it carried over into the ACOG timeframe, which started about 03. It carried over into that because the only way that you could get inside of that scope and have a full scope of light is by putting your nose against the charging handle. Because even when, I mean, you've got, uh, I can't remember uh, Marcus's company that mounts that 
Um, GDI? GDI. Yeah. Like, if you look at GDI's mount, like, and, and, and it's, he designed a mount to kick the ACOG further back, mm -hmm. right? And it was for that eye relief reason. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at the ACOG, you have a phenomenal field of view. You have given up all the ground possible on the eye relief, yeah. right? And like I said, how bulletproof is an ACOG? Yeah, probably one of the toughest scopes on the planet, right? So I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that it's right or wrong or indifferent. I'm saying it's important to know that so that when you're making a decision on an optic based on the application, what am I willing to give ground on? Okay, I right. need a massive field of view. Okay, well then you're going to give up eye relief. I don't care about eye relief. Perfect. Okay. You're, you yeah. know you're shooting bench rest. That's fine. That's your game, right? That's your game. Um, but working for a company that literally the foundation of the company as far as the scope side of it comes from hunting and field work mm -hmm. eye relief has been a critical measurement for us right but going back to field of view field of view is very very important to understand right there's you all know that on low power your field of view grows on high power it shrinks down but you have two types of field of view you have actual which is the marketed field of view that you're going to see yeah. on somebody's website on the spec sheet right. and then you have a parent field of view now that's what you can see at a certain distance, left or right, laterally in your scope, top to bottom, left to right. Why that's really important to understand is there's a lot of scopes out there that as the magnification window grows, right? We went from three to nine, now we went to four to one zoom ratios and then five to one zoom ratios. Now we've got six to one zoom ratios, blah, blah, blah. The, the magnification window starts growing and growing and growing. As you get towards the outboard <laughs> edges of that magnification window, you're going to get distortion coming in as that stray light comes in. You're going to get aberration coming in on the outboard edges of the scope. Mm -hmm. Well, probably one of the biggest marketing terms that we use in the scope world is edge-to-edge -edge clarity. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard that a million times from every different optics company. Oh, this one, we really market this one. It's got edge-to-edge -edge clarity. Well, as you grow up in magnification or go down because you've got this massive magnification window, you lose that edge to edge clarity. So the outboard edges of your field of view start to get fuzzy or they get those yellow or violet hues from the chromatic aberration coming in. So what a lot of companies will do is they'll put an iris inside of their scope, just like an old camera lens collapses, that aperture collapses down mm -hmm. that iris. Yeah. Well, as you go all the way down, and say you've got a 5 to 25, say you're on 7 or 8 power, and you drop down low, you don't realize it, but there's an iris that collapses in. And because you're looking through the scope out the other end, you don't realize that your field of view that was your apparent field of view just got blocked out. Yeah. Right? And so why would you go from 8 power to 5 power when you're shooting something or looking at something? Probably because you need a bigger field of view. Right? right? That's why you would do that. Mm -hmm. Right, you're not looking at something at 80 yards and be like, man, eight power is just too much. I need six. Right. Like that two power doesn't really mean anything. The only reason you would do that is to grow your field of view. Mm -hmm. Well, on a lot of these scopes that are five to 25, seven to 35, or even bigger, you don't have a better field of view. You have the apparent, like the uh, perception of a better field of view because you've dropped your magnification. We inherently know that when I go down in mag, I grow my field of view. Well, what happens is as that iris collapses in, from you know seven power eight power down to five we lose field of view so now what you're stuck with is less magnification but the field of view hasn't changed because yeah. it collapsed in to block out that chromatic aberration or the distortion right and now you're back to edge to edge clarity yeah but you've cut down your field of view same thing will happen on the top end of a scope so um if you get the scope and it's a five to 25 and you're at 23 power and you dial up your magnification you'll see that iris collapse in but you have to look for it yeah. like it happens slowly and your human eye doesn't 
It doesn't pick it up unless you're looking inside of the scope mm -hmm. as opposed to through it when you do that. And so why that's really, really important is because if you select a certain model of scope and you're like, I want this scope because it goes down an extra five power than my other one, and I'm going to get a way bigger field of view. And when I'm observing this or doing that, I want that bigger field of view. We'll get inside of that scope in the store before you buy it and get on, you know, five, six magnifications above bottom or five, six below the top, start there and slowly bring that magnification, that power selector ring down or up and watch inside of the scope. Oftentimes, and I would say these days, almost more often than not, you're going to see an iris collapse in and block out all of your apparent field of view. You're looking at that from the objective or the ocular? The ocular, just like you're looking through the scope. Mm -hmm. Look through your scope, get on, say if you have a 5 to 25, get on 7 or 8 power and dial all the way down to 5 and then see if an iris collapses in on you. Okay. That blocks out all that outboard clutter that you don't mm -hmm. want there, bringing the scope back to edge-to-edge -edge clarity, but your edges are now closer. Right. Right? So um, that is that is really important to understand because... A lot of times we go in thinking, oh, this scope has this field of view. Well, the interesting thing about that, that iris collapsing in is it changes your apparent field of view. So it changes what you can see left to right or top to bottom, but it doesn't change the numbers of your actual field of view. Mm -hmm. So if we say, hey, you've got, you know, 14.7 yards at 100 yards, right? Well, when I drop from 10 power down to five and an iris collapses in, I still have 14.7 yards of actual field of view, but my apparent field of view has now been blocked out. Right. Right. So the apparent field of view is the only field of view aspect that we need to be worried about. Gotcha. And that's really important to look at when you're, when you're looking at a scope, there's certain characteristics that were our feature sets that we're looking for about a scope field of view is a big one, yeah. right? It's a really important one. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Coming up on our time, but I can't let you go yet, man. I want okay. to talk about some. You brought up something. Um, exit pupil. Yeah. Okay. There's only so much our eyes can take in. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So exit pupil is also another important aspect of a scope that I think to understand and what it really where it really matters is for low light shooting mm -hmm. and inline clip on. So thermal, I like I squared or thermals, right? Mm -hmm. So. We talk about objective lens. Why do we need a bigger objective? Well, most people tell you it gives you more light, mm -hmm. but it doesn't. It doesn't give you more light. So what a bigger objective does is it gives you a bigger exit pupil. So as the lights and colors, that bundle rolls into the scope, it goes all the way through the scope, and it exits the scope in a definitive disk of light. Mm -hmm. And that definitive disk of light is going to have a measurement to it that we can actually measure, and that's where our relationship with the scope starts. Mm -hmm. And Say if that that exit pupil that the the light comes out in an exit pupil that's say that diameter of that circle is five millimeters. Well, if our eye is only dilated to three millimeters, we have two extra millimeters, one millimeter left, right, up, or down to move where we can have that a little bit of wiggle room and mm -hmm. still have a full scope of light. We always talk about, I've got scope shadow creeping in all over the place. I'm, I'm fighting scope shadow. Well, it's not scope shadow creeping in. It's actually your eye pupil creeping out of the exit pupil. So if you have a scope with a 56 millimeter objective and you're on, I'm going to do this like totally differently because I don't math so well. <laughs> if you have a scope with a 60 millimeter objective, mm -hmm. right? And you have, you're on 20 power, and that's your max magnification, mm -hmm. 20 power. 
20 goes into 63 times. Mm-hmm. On max magnification, you will have a three millimeter diameter exit pupil. Okay. Right? That's going to be the diameter of your exit pupil. If you take that and you drop that scope down to 10 power, 10 goes into 66 times, right? Okay. So now you think I have a six millimeter ex- exit pupil. Okay. All right. From Great. a shooter's math, that's correct. And it's mm-hmm. close enough and it doesn't matter. From the engineering side, that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. And it won't work out that way. It only works on max magnification because as we drop down in power, we're no longer using the entirety of the objective lens to draw light. Okay. So the math doesn't exactly work out unless you're on max magnification. But the con- concept is the same. Concept the same. And yeah. honestly, if I'm like, I got about a six mil, you're going to be close enough. It doesn't matter, yeah. right? Why that matters is when you start getting into low light shooting, your pupil dilates Mm -hmm. and it grows. And so what you need is a larger exit pupil on the back end so that your eye can fit into that exit pupil. Mm -hmm. So people talk about why do I want a bigger objective? It gives me more light. No, it doesn't. You might perceive it as more light, but all you've done is grown the area Mm -hmm. of that exit pupil for you to move around in behind the scope and still have a full scope of light. Why that is a big deal is because when you start using inline clip-on systems, so say like a Knight's PBS-30, mm-hmm. all over the Army right now, Special Operations the Marine Corps side uses it, blah, blah, blah. That, you can only take that, clip it on your rifle, and bring your day optic behind it up to 10 power, recommended no more than 8. Otherwise, your image gets all grainy and pixelated mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, so what is the human eye max dilate to in the middle of the night? It's about 8 millimeters. So if you're on 10 power and you have a 56 millimeter objective, 10 goes into 56, 5.6 times. Mm-hmm. So you both roll it up to 10 power, you get behind that thing and immediately you're going to have a big fat black donut all the way around it right. because your eye pupil is actually bigger than your exit pupil. Right. So now what we do is we drop the scope down, say to five power, five goes into 56, 10 point, whatever, 10.2, yeah. right? Now I can fit inside of it. Okay, so a bigger objective, if you're somebody that that is wanting to utilize an inline clip on system, thermal night vision, whatever it is, a larger objective will give you that that bigger exit pupil. Now, you and I both know that a lot of people shoot better in the dark, mm-hmm. right? Because all the other stimulants are gone and all they can see is a reticle and a target. That's it. Yeah. And uh, I think it's one of the most interesting things is when you have sniper school students going through sniper school, the night mover quals come and they get really, really nervous. And then their scores are always better than their yep. day mover quals. Yeah. I have stories well, about that. What's that? I got stories about that. I have, I have no <laughs> doubt that you've got 30 years of stories about stuff like that because yep. you've been training these 19-year-old rubber kids <laughs> for freaking ever. But what's uh, what's interesting is understanding when you're giving up something, you got to get something else. So say like on the Mark V, 3.618, that's only a 44 millimeter objective. Mm -hmm. But unlike the 5 to 25, I can go down to 3.6 power. So was the the 5 to 25 can only get so big of an exit pupil when it goes all the way down to 5. And my objective on the 3.618 is only 44, but I can go lower on the back end. I can grow that exit pupil. So it's not just about the size of the objective. It's the size of the objective in combination with how low can the scope go? Because you and I both know that to shoot 600 yards at night on 3.6 power is no big deal, right? You don't need the magnification. You just don't because all the other stimulants are gone inside Mm -hmm. your scope and your field of view. All those are gone. So a lower magnification is so much more doable at night, especially through a PVS 30 or 27 or whatever it is you're shooting. So understanding that if you have a scope with a really small objective, like if I had a five to 25 by 44, 
that would be a pain in the neck because I can only go down to five power and grow my exit pupil so much. But right. because I can go down to 3.6, now I can grow it even larger. Roger that. So that exit pupil is that definitive disc of light that our eye pupil needs to be inside of when we move laterally from the scope left, right, or up and down to where we have room to move and shift our position a little bit and still have a full scope of light. Right. That's Healthy. what that exit pupil is. Very cool, man. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Always. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, once again, ROAP, Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast, ROAP at riflesonly.com. If anybody has any questions for for Michael, uh, send them in on that. We'll get him back on, or maybe I can just answer them real quick for him. But anyway, we really appreciate y'all taking the time to listen to us. And if you need anything, send us an email. Talk to you soon.